Today, we're going to look at uh, what I call a gospel goodbye. What are we talking about? Well, you don't have to live very long, even as kids, to know life is filled with hellos and goodbyes. There's new things that are coming and going in and out of our lives. As we grow and we get older, we have to say goodbye to our childhood. And uh, sometimes we look at our kids and our grandkids and they don't even know how good they have it, not a care in the world. And that's a wonderful time in their lives. But then we grow up, and what happens? We have to get our education. Then we get uh, married, maybe. We have a family. We get a mortgage. Uh, the carefree single life we say goodbye to and all the responsibilities of family. We get a career. We get promotions. We may get demotions. We may get hired. We get fired. Things are coming and going in and out of our lives constantly. And that's not always easy. I, even when good things happen in your life, when you're saying hello to the next new adventure, maybe it feels real wonderful and positive. You go, wow, I can't wait to get there. There's still a tinge of, of regret and remorse and even grief, if you will, as you grieve the familiar and, and, and what you had. And uh, think about that as you reflect on your life, some of those transitions that you went through. Going to the new or, or maybe something bad happened that you didn't expect and, and you're sorting through all of those emotions. We're not immune to that as believers, are we? And so we come to a passage in God's Word where we see a change, where we see the Apostle Paul getting ready to pivot into a new chapter in his life after really an epic time, he had been in Ephesus. And if you read in chapter 19, I commend that to your Lord's Day reading today. There's some incredible things that are going on. Kids, you would really like it. I mean, there's riots uh, and all sorts of... And by the way, how many, how many of you know, when you're really preaching the gospel, usually one of two things happen. You're either going to get a revival or you're going to get a riot. Because the gospel brings conviction. It's confrontational. And people are never the same. And so we read some incredible stories. We won't look at all of them. Just three little things out of, the, out of chapter 19. We see that in Acts 19, verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue, which was his common missionary tactic. He would first go to the Jews. And for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn... And continued in unbelief, and notice this, speaking evil of the way. So now the controversy is starting to come up. Speaking evil of the way, that's the, the faith, if you will. Before the congregation, he withdrew from them. So he had to leave his own countrymen, the Jews. And what does it say? He took his disciples with him and reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And so they had to change venues. They got run out of the church, Right? Run out of the synagogue. So they went down the street to the civics, to the community center and started over in Tyrannus' hall. And he did this for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Can you imagine that two year period in Ephesus? God used that time of ministry and those people to whom Paul was connected to literally bring the gospel to all of Asia, all of Asia Minor, the surrounding cities. By the way, 
I understand you're going through the book of Revelation. Guess what you're reading at the beginning of the book of Revelation? The letters written to what? The churches in Asia Minor. These are the churches that got birthed out of this work that God had done through the Apostle Paul. And it was an exciting time. The church was growing, but it wasn't without controversy. Then there's this other fascinating story. So everybody wanted to get on the bandwagon, right? So the sons of the high priest, the seven sons of Sceva, heard about, wow, the action is in the name of Jesus, and great things are happening. So they went out and in invoked the name of Jesus in trying to cast demons out of people. And you remember the story. Um, and well, let's just read it. You know, So they're there, and they're trying to cast these demons out of this man, and the demon speaks. And what does he say in verse 15? The evil spirit answered them, that is the seven sons of Sceva, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Wow. Wow. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. I, I bet it did. And both the Jews and the Greeks, and I love this, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Wow. A couple of things here. I've I got to get to my text. This is just warm. I just want you to get the context of what's going on. I love this. The demon says, Jesus I know. Paul, I know, but who are you? Let me just ask you, does the devil know your name? You knew who Jesus was. He certainly knew who the Apostle Paul was. Does the devil know your name? Are you making a difference? Are you ministering powerfully in the name of Jesus? He knew the Apostle Paul's name. And, of course, these seven sons of Sceva, they were not believers. They didn't have the authority to be operating in the name of Jesus, and therefore they were basically beaten up and run out of the house. And fear came upon the people. They understood this is real. Jesus is real. The power of God is real. The gospel is real, and it's for keeps. And then, by the way, the conviction of the Holy Spirit was so much upon that city They all got all of the books that were associated with the occult and brought them out and had a big bonfire and they burned. And it said these books, these, these occultic uh, sources were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. If you were to translate that, I was like, well, what is that today? Some people say it's about worth $90 per piece. So about $450,000 worth of books they burned as an act of Repentance as they renounce the occult and turn to God. And I love what it says in verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Isn't that our heart? Isn't that what we want to see? So having experienced such an incredible time of ministry with the Ephesians, uh, Certainly, their hearts are knit together. Have you found that in the kingdom of God? The people that you labor with, that you pray with, that you strive with, that you suffer with, that you you go to war with as you're advancing the kingdom, those become, if you will, you become a band of brothers. And they'd gone through much together. So there was a deep, profound spiritual bond. And now Paul is getting ready to say goodbye to these people. And he knows that in this world, he would never see them again. 
And I believe some of these truths that we're going to look at today are some of the most important truths because, you know, it's, these are his last words to these people that he loves so deeply and he wants to admonish them, to love them, to warn them. So let's look at the nature of the gospel then. In a gospel goodbye, if you were having to say goodbye to people that you deeply love and, and cared for, what would you want them to know? Let's see what the inspired Word of God teaches us today. First, it teaches us that the gospel, whatever you think of it, is a transformational gospel. The gospel changes everything. Verse 17 of uh, Acts 20. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to them. So they came out to meet Paul. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you. And the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, underline that humility, and with tears and with trials, all that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. So Paul had a a fabulous ministry. He was an apostolic church planter, but it was fraught with trials at the hands of his fellow Jews that are, uh, frankly are legend. I don't know about you. I went to see the movie, The Apostle Paul. I go, what? That's going to be a great movie. But they left out all the good stuff. The persecutions, the floggings, the stonings, the shipwrecks, the imprisonment. All the, I mean, all the things that the Apostle Paul had to do. He went to jail for Jesus. He was stoned and left for dead. They thought they killed him. He was deprived of things he went without and and was hungry and cold and naked and shipwrecked, all of those things. And by the way, this wasn't a surprise. When Paul was converted, he was told, you are going to suffer many things for my name's sake. And indeed it did happen. But the juxtaposition between what Paul was before he was a Christian, before he met Jesus, and after he met Jesus is dramatic. In his previous life, he was an elite. He was an aristocrat. He was an expert in theology and revered. And by the way, he was so zealous in his Judaism that he persecuted Christians. And though he was at the pinnacle of his career, his influence, he was utterly lost in self-righteous religion. Many people find that shocking, that you can be religious and still be damned. And that was the state of Saul of Tarsus. Even though he was a Jew among Jews, he had all the right pedigrees from right family, from the right education, yet he was lost and damned in self-righteousness. But then this lauded Saul of Tarsus, before he became Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, met the risen Christ And he was supernaturally transformed. We all love those stories of transformation. We love to see rags to riches stories. It was the opposite here. It went from riches to rags. Now this great apostle Paul (laughs) is not that great, is he? He's considered the off-scouring of the earth. The the apostles are despised. This great leader, this aristocrat, the elite, if you will, the, the one percenter, is now part of the marginalized people of God. 
I don't know if sometimes I think the way the gospel is preached today, oh, if you come to Jesus, you know, you're going to be prosperous. Everything's going to go your way. It's going to be easy. It's going to, you know, somebody needs to read the book of Acts. There's a price to be paid for following Christ. And one of the great things that happened, though, for Paul is he was humbled. He was a humbled man as a result of what the Lord did. See, it's important for us to remember the same gospel that comes and, and lifts us up in that our sins are forgiven and, and we're restored to a relationship with God and all the, the positive things that the gospel brings in lifting us up humbles us as well. Any pride, any sense of our own uh, ability, any uh, uh, sense that we can earn God's favor, all of that is completely cut off in the heart of the believer. We are humbled before Almighty God. In fact, when we come to church, we don't come to church because we're, you know, this is so, so an expression of how wonderful we are. It's really, we come here to admit we're desperate. We're hungry. It's an act of humility to come to church, not an act of self-righteousness. We come to sit under the authority of God and His Word to have Him speak into our lives and we humbly come to lift up our voices in worship and to hear His Word proclaimed to us out of a sense of our own spiritual poverty and hunger. So let me ask you today, have you been humbled by the grace of God? Have you gone to Christ knowing you're absolutely spiritually bankrupt. Nothing that you can bring to Him can ever earn His grace and favor. Paul was so scrupulous too, because he didn't want to create an offense, that he made sure as he lived among the Ephesians, remember, teaching for years at the Hall of Tyrannus, he also had a full-time job. Notice what he says in verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who said to him, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So here is the Apostle Paul. He probably in our in our culture, he would have had the equivalent of at least one, maybe two, some people say three PhDs. So this is, he's, he's a very well-educated man. But in order to support his ministry, and so as not to be an offense to his, his Gentile hearers, what did he do? He made tents. And the calluses on his hands testified that he thought it was more of a privilege to serve the persecuted, marginalized people of God than to have all the prestige that he could have enjoyed had he just not followed the Lord. This world is manure. That's what Paul said. Compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ. Paul now identifies with the very people he once persecuted, these these culturally incorrect Christians. And with tears, it says, he humbly ministered to them and taught them because he identified with them as Christ's blood-bought bride. 
it's kind of trendy today. I don't know if you've ever heard this. People say, you know, I don't have a problem with Christ, but his people, the Christians, oh, that's my problem, right? That sounds kind of almost religious, but we know it's not true. Because obviously, if they say they don't have a problem with Christ, but don't love Christ's people, they don't know Christ. Because we are the apple of His eye. We are the blood-bought people of God. 1 John says, We know that we have passed out of death unto life because we love the brethren. Paul loved the church. Do you love the church? Oh yes. I know the problems. I know the church is messy. I know we are weak. But yet we remain the apple of God's eye. Paul loved the church for who she was. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, this quote just came to mind. He said, the problem many times with us is that we fall in love with the idea of the church. (laughs) Oh, the idea of the church is wonderful, but we don't love the church as she truly is. Have you been in church long enough to have your feelings hurt? Have you been in church long enough to be disappointed? If you haven't been, just stick around. It'll happen to you. That's just the the nature of being in relationships in in this world. But you've got to realize this church is bought and paid for by the very blood of God. And we need to love Christ and love what Christ loved, even as the Apostle Paul did. Paul was not ashamed to be identified with the Christians and all that came with it. Do you humbly love the Lord then? Do you humbly seek to serve His people? I'll tell you, when the Gospel grips your heart, it's what you want to do. It's a privilege. So the Gospel does transform. Secondly, I didn't realize I'm taking too much time here. Oh, this I guess I'm running out the clock so you can't talk about the sermon afterwards, right? <laughs> oh, It's a profitable Gospel. I love this. Notice what Paul says. Notice, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. As an apostle, he was zealous to declare all that was spiritually profitable to his hearers. There's no secret message in the gospel. There's not a message for the people that are on the inside and the pe- and then a marketing message that we're going to put out there for the people outside of the church. That's what cults do. That's what false religions do. The gospel is to be heard by everyone without equivocation. There's no secret doctrines. Only cults and Gnostics have to play that game and pull you in and then give you their hidden knowledge. But have you noticed all these religions that promise you hidden knowledge? First of all, it's pretty expensive if you get down to it. It ends up costing you a lot of money, and then it ends up damning your soul. But what God has revealed in the Scriptures is for everyone. Even if people like swine trample gospel pearls, we're still commanded to declare God's Word. And notice it's a profitable word. 
And it's profitable for everyone. It's truly egalitarian. You can be a Jew or a Gentile. You can be male or female. You can be a slave or free. You can be a child or an adult. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, all that Christ makes available is available to you. And he grants a very profitable, imperishable, heavenly treasure. He gives to you his merits. He gives to you his righteousness. And this mother load of eternal wealth is based upon two things. I love what he says here. It's based on repentance towards God in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Could it be any more simple? There's the gospel in a nutshell. What is repentance? It's not hard. It just means to turn. Turn where? Turn from our sin. Turn from our self-righteousness on the one hand, and our, le- our lawlessness on the other, and turn to God. As we said, many people are surprised that both of these are condemned. Oh yeah, we those lawless people, yes, they definitely need to repent. Yeah, but what about the Pharisees, the self-righteous? Both of them need to repent and flee to Christ. And then what do we do? We confess our sin. What does confession mean? just means we agree with God. Agree with God about what? That both our lawlessness and our legalism are insufficient to save us. We've all broken His law 10,000 times in thought and word and deed. We've all done it. We all need God's mercy. But if God were to give us what our sin deserves, what does our sin deserve? Does our sin deserve mercy? Does our sin deserve mercy? Forgiveness or pity? No. Our God is a holy God. And if God gave us, you know, everybody, I want justice. (laughs) No, you don't. (laughs) You want mercy. Because if God gave us justice, we would all die eternally. So our repentance is merely just turning from ourselves, turning from our sin, and turning to God and throwing ourselves on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God gives us His merits. Have you done that? Whether you're a child or an adult, it's never too early or too late to throw yourselves on the mercies of God and Jesus Christ. This is the only profitable spiritual truth that can save your immortal soul. It's also a compelling gospel. Verses 22 through 24, Paul says, And now behold... I'm going to Jerusalem, I love this, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. See, once the gospel grips your soul, if you really get this, you know everything changes. You're a new person in Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul says. He was compelled, he was constrained, if you will, he was motivated by the Holy Spirit to do God's will. And what was God's will for him? To go up to Jerusalem. But he had been warned, right? When you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. They're going to arrest you, they're going to imprison you. And yet, Paul was constrained to go. Now, have you ever felt... Tempted to help the Lord out. 
Well, Lord, I know that, you know, going to Jerusalem is going to, I've already been warned, so I'm going to help the Lord out. You know, what good is an apostle in jail, right? I can have a much more fruitful ministry if I'm out publicly preaching and sharing the gospel, so I'm going to help. Aren't you glad Paul didn't try to help the Lord out? We wouldn't have the New Testament. Virtually all of it was, the Paul's epistles were written from jail. He went constrained by the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes us different. It should make you different. When you came to Christ, everything changed. You don't get to do the conventional things. What the world may consider wise. You may, but you may not either. Because you belong to the Lord. Paul knew he belonged to the Lord. And he knew the Lord had sent him to Jerusalem. And he knew it would cost him his freedom. And yet, he obeyed him. One of the most important blessings that I've ever enjoyed in my life was very early in my Christian life, I was able to minister to the persecuted church. And this is years and years ago, but this was when they were behind the Iron Curtain. And this is when the Soviets were on the march. This is 1979, 1980, 1981. Terrible time. Go back and read the headlines. Brezhnev was president of the Soviet Union. There were wars going on in South America, in Africa. Communism was on the march. It was a really, really scary time. And God in his goodness allowed me to get to go into what was is now the former Soviet Union, but was Russia and all of the satellite countries that the communists had conquered. And uh, in that experience, I met a young man. His name was Herbert. Herbert was a member of the Communist Youth League. He was on the fast track to do what he had to do in that culture to make it. He was going to the university. He was the president of that particular chapter. And guess what? He found Christ, or Christ found him. And uh, fast forward, this was the young man that was helping us when we were doing our ministry there. And as a result of helping us and having been found to have associated with us, which was against the law, he was thrown in jail. And jail there isn't like jail here. They put him on a starvation diet. While he was in jail, he lost the sight in one eye. All of his hair fell out. I mean, they they just starve you to death, basically. But we asked Herbert before. We didn't know that was going to happen. That happened after we left because he was willing to literally stand on the stage and translate for us while we were preaching the gospel. So he put everything on the line for Jesus. And when asked, Herbert, why are you doing this? Why are you risking everything? He lost his position at school. He lost his career. He lost everything for the sake of Christ. He said one thing, and it's like burned into my soul. He said, When I came to Christ, I died. You know, that's New Testament, right? I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives within me. That's not novel Christianity for persecuted people. That's the only Christianity there is. If you have come to Christ, you have died. Your agenda for your life, your dreams, your ambitions, what you aspire to has to be laid down at the foot 
of the cross of Jesus because you no longer live. You've given up your life. Your life is now hidden in Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul said. Look in verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So what's more important? Doing what you know God's called you to do. Not perfectly. I mean, God uses broken people, but aspiring to do His will or living the American dream. Your comfort or doing God's will. Testifying to the grace of God or getting the bonus or the fame or whatever. Jesus put it this way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? When you come to Christ, it's for keeps. And that's the Jesus that's worth serving. Hey, if Jesus is not worth dying for, He's not worth living for. But how many of you know He's both? And by the way, the early church knew that. In the first three centuries of Christianity, before 325, when Christianity was finally legalized, at least two million Christians died for the testimony of the risen Christ. That's real Christianity. That's what we are called to, all of us. You're studying the book of Revelation. One of my favorite verses is Revelation 12, 11. Speaking of the struggle with Satan, it says, and they conquered him, what? The, the satanic attacks that they were under. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and what? And they loved not their lives unto death. That is the power of real Christianity. Spurgeon said this, The ship of Christ's church never sails so well as when she is tossed side to side by the winds of persecution. Now, we're not spiritual masochists. We don't sign up for it. We don't you know, volunteer for it. But neither do we shirk it. Have you paid a price for identifying with Jesus? Have you ever paid any price for your faith standing for Him? Are you just kind of undercover Christian? Don't want to don't want to rock the boat. Don't want to stir things up. That's not the true spirit of what God has called you to do. Where do you put your value? On the gospel or upon your comfort? God help us. Because the struggle, the satanic struggle is real. Now listen to this warning. And this is, you know, when you love somebody, you, you want to impart not only, you know, you want them to know that you love them, but if you have some wisdom, you want to warn them. And he gives us one of the most incredible warnings in Scripture. And this is one of these passages 
that I just feel like every church needs to look at almost annually to hear this warning. And frankly, this is the reason why I'm a Presbyterian, because of the truths that are contained in this warning. Now behold, I know that none among you... Let me write again. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves. And who is he talking to? He's talking to the elders. Elders, take careful attention for yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Among who? Among the elders. Not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So the apostles' last words are are so sobering. Be aware. This is for keeps. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Eternity is real. Satanic resistance, satanic sabotage are real and they are dangerous. Now, I love this. Notice Paul first asserts his innocence. He says, I want you to know, though, that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because he did not trifle with their souls. He did not fail to declare to them the whole counsel of God. The gospel and the law. The promises and the commandments. The warnings and the comfort. We need to hear it all. And by the way, if you're a sheep, don't you want to hear that? God's people want to hear truth. They don't want a minister who's pandering to them. Now, our flesh does. (laughs) But in our heart of hearts, we want to hear God's Word and we want to hear it straight up, don't we? Because the Spirit of truth lives in us and we, we crave that and we want that from our minister. And oh, by the way, the prophetic words, even the book of Revelation, the sheep need to be taught, right? He did not trifle with them. The opposite would be true as well. If you do play games with God's people and God's Word, I believe you better be careful. Paul said he was innocent. There's a lot of men out there that are proclaiming things, and I believe they're under a lot of condemnation because they refuse to declare the whole counsel of God. God have mercy on their soul, and may they repent of that sin. Then Paul instructs the other elders that their first duty, listen to this church, the first duty of your ministers and your elders that are coming on board is not to you. Their first duty is to guard each other. The elders have to protect the elders. Why? Because as the elders go, so go the church. And if the elders are corrupt, if the elders' doctrines are wrong, if the elders' practices are wrong, the church is going to be uh, misserved. And so 
Thank God for your pastor who goes to presbytery. This is why I'm a Presbyterian. We believe the elders need each other. We need to guard each other's doctrine and practice. This is right out of the Scripture. When people come in, we examine them. We examine their doctrine. We hear their testimony. And we need to be accountable one to another. And I thank God for the presbytery that we're in. I believe it's relatively strong and healthy in many ways. So the church, remember, this is the most precious thing in the universe. Look around. It doesn't seem very auspicious, does it? But notice what that text says. This is the church that was bought with the blood of God. That's the only time that that turn of phrase appears in the Scripture. That's pretty sobering. Of all of the things in the created universe... You are the blood-bought people of God. Bought with the very blood of God. This isn't, this isn't just a social hour. This isn't just about you know, being religious. This is the most important thing in the universe. And because it is, that's why it's the epicenter, if you will, of satanic attack. So Satan's going to come after it with everything he can. And what is it? He's going to come from without, and he's going to come from within, and it's going to start in the eldership, Paul says. Watch out. There are wolves that are going to come. And they're ravenous wolves. And how do you know that? Because they're going to come up with novel doctrines. If you ever come to church and you hear something you haven't heard before, elders, you get suspicious. You better. Because there are guys, there are, there are spirits, the spirit of Antichrist out there. And, and by the way, we like new things, don't we? We're kind of attracted to novelty. They'll come in with new, twisted doctrines. Watch for that. Elders, be careful. And the second mark is they bring disciples to themselves. The mark of a true shepherd is he will always and every time point you to Christ. If you ever sit under a a minister who's talking about himself all the time, talking about what a great guy he is and how smart he is and he's the hero of his own stories, and it's all drawing attention to him, run for your lives. That's the sign of a wolf. True shepherds will always point you to the Good Shepherd. It's always about Christ. The good news is, though, the Good Shepherd has promised to give you ministers after His own heart. And God's people will recognize that. But we have to be aware. There are those things that will come into the church. And and God's people, the sheep, really crave true servant Leaders. Now, but our flesh, the carnal part of us, we like celebrity. We like shiny things. <laughs> and by the way, you know, goats will eat just about any kind of garbage, right? So there's, uh, there are goats and the sheep in, in churches. They're not saved they, and they have no spiritual discernment. But the sheep know the Good Shepherd's voice. And when The Gospel is being preached faithfully. You're going to hear about Christ and you're going to hear Christ in His Word. So pray for your elders, church. Pray for them. Because they're under attack. 
Pray for this presbytery. I believe our presbytery is under constant attack. There's always novel things coming in. We talked a little bit about that at the last presbytery. And we're going to have to, we're going to have to respond to that. New ideas that uh, present themselves in, frankly, usually an attempt to accommodate the culture. And are we going to stand on the Word of God or not? So pray for your elders, not only in this session, but in this presbytery of which I'm a member. Remember that these are men who will give an account for the souls that God has put to their charge. And that's serious. And then lastly, it's a blessed gospel. Verse 32. So after Paul admonishes them and warns them and pleads with them, we read these words, And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul pronounces this blessed benediction over his people, commending them to God and the Word of His grace, which is the Gospel, and knowing that God's Word, this Scripture that you hold. Don't ever take it for granted. It is God's oath. It's His promise. It's His covenant to you. It's unshakable and unbreakable. And this Word can strengthen you. Notice what He says. It edifies and provides spiritual strength for you. Even Jesus taught us what? Men shall not live by bread alone. But but by what? But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where do we find that? It's recorded for us here in God's holy word. Do you devour this word? Do you hunger for this word? Do you delight in this word? If not, you need to pray for your own soul. This is where God speaks to you. Seek this. You should be in the word every day. And if you're not hungry for it, you need to say, God... There's something wrong with my appetite. Uh, you know, when you lose your appetite, that's usually when you're sick, right? I don't feel like eating. If you don't have an appetite for God's Word, what does that say about the condition of your soul? There's something wrong. You need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what's going on here? The good news is, when everything else fails, remember our hellos and our goodbyes, when the job fails, when the economy fails, when our loved one dies, when when people move away, when things change, and everything around us is moving, what never changes? God and His infallible Word. This is the anchor for our soul. And so the Word of God not only builds us up and strengthens us, it reminds us and guarantees us our eternal inheritance. It's an eternal inheritance treasure that God has made known to us through the riches of Christ. And we know that in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God to us are yes and amen. We can stand upon that when everything else in our world is moving. The Word of God sanctifies us. Notice what Jesus says, sanctify them in Thy truth, Your Word is truth. Notice Paul says when we are in this Word, we are strengthened by it. We are given a guaranteed inheritance and we are numbered among those who are sanctified. We are part of a holy assembly. 
This is the work of grace that Christ has done for us. Spiritual strength. Eternal inheritance. We belong in the courts of the Lord with the people of God and the holy angels and the holy trinity. What more could we want? So finally, verse 36, the scene concludes. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. To the ship. Goodbyes can be painful in this life. And they knew they wouldn't see Paul again, but is that true? Well, yes and no. In this world, no, they would not see Paul again. But isn't one of the most blessed truths of the Gospel is that one day we'll never have to say goodbye again. Some of us have lost dear friends. I know I have just in the last couple of years. Dear friends that surprisingly and unexpectedly died in my mind prematurely, but guess what? They're in heaven. And I'm going to get to see them. Part of the no more sorrow and and no more weeping is there's no more goodbyes in heaven. We'll forever be together with the Lord and with His people. Do you look forward to that? Do you believe in that? Isn't that what the Gospel promises all of us today? So, Pastor Gary, what do we do with all this? I hope you've been stirred. I hope your heart is stirred with the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ. Touch that. Let that grip your soul. And then let that touch you when you leave here. Because there's people that you love and that I love who don't know Christ, that need the gospel. We need to pray for them. We need to ask God, Lord, give me your heart for them. Give me boldness to be able to share the gospel. Help me to pray fast, whatever I got to do to see you work in the people that I love, because this is for keeps. This is forever. It's heaven and hell and life and death. Pray that God gives you His heart. And if you're here and you've never made Jesus the Lord, who knows, you may never see my face again, just like the Apostle Paul. So I plead with you, I beg you, turn to Christ. Find mercy today while it's available. Don't harden your heart. Don't say, well, when I get older, I'm going to go do my thing, and when I get older... I'll do it. You may not make it past the parking lot today. Things happen in this life. Don't take tomorrow for granted. And oh, by the way, if you hardened your heart today against the Gospel, what makes you think the next time you hear the Gospel, it's going to be easier for you to believe? People come to faith very rarely when they're older in their lives. Because they've spent their whole life hardening their heart and justifying their unbelief. So come to Christ now while you're young. You're never going to be younger than you are today. Come now while He's inviting you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank You 
for this portion of Scripture so profound and convicting and searching. And Lord, talk to us. Lord, if there's something in our life that is more important to us than the Gospel, Lord, take it from us. We know that that's right. And uh, forgive us, Lord, for being seduced by this world and the things of this world and the promises of this world and let us live in the light of eternity. And we pray for those whom we love who don't know You. Lord, even today that You would send Your Holy Spirit wherever they are. I think of my son who's struggling in his unbelief. Lord, don't let him rest until he finds peace with You. Lord, for all of our family members that we love, God, we want to see them with us forever in heaven. So Lord, we claim Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your household. Lord, bring household salvation to our family members that they might know you and be saved. And Lord, today grant saving faith to anyone who is here. Lord, don't let them leave without making peace with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.